This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at current titles in cinema and then connects them to films of, of days gone by, and, and hopefully you'll find something interesting to watch from the, uh, the pile of streaming and rentable and findable films. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax at the Chronicle Herald. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film and arts writer in Halifax as well. I have a blog. It is called Flaw in the Iris. It's all about film, and you can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we are taking a look at the life in the spotlight, the rise to fame, the decline to failure. Yes, of course, it's A Star is Born, and we're taking a look at all four or possibly five, depending on how you feel about uh, an additional film, uh, versions of this story. And uh, we're going to be right back with a look at the new A Star is Born, brand new with uh, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga right after this. Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. So Stephen, I was wondering if you have gotten shallow out of your head yet. This is the <laughs> the big hit from this movie. It's actually kind of remarkable. You know, this movie shows up at TIFF and uh, people love it. Everyone is loving this film and it gets that kind of hype. And then within a month, it opens wide in cinemas and the songs from the movie wind up a number one download and everyone is excited about this like the it's it's been a while since i think we've seen maybe since i guess maybe black panther or uh, like we've seen a movie that has really dominated the cultural conversation what's so special about this i think is the fact that it's not one of those franchise films this is this is uh, <laughs> okay that said it is a film that's been remade 3 times but it is its own thing. It's self-contained, and uh, it is uh, it is a it's, it's a real surprise. And I, I love to see that. I love to see when everyone is talking about a movie uh, that just comes kind of out of nowhere. It's it is a kind of remarkable phenomenon. The the film is, is a big hit. The music is a big hit. Uh, the you mentioned Black Panther. I was thinking of Mile Eight, the Eminem film. Uh, oh, if we're going to talk know. about music and film, well, sure. Well, well yeah. we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. I don't think, but we'll probably well we probably will. But <laughs> um, because that's the nature of this program. But but uh, you know, for, for a, a film musical crossover, uh, you know, maybe let it go from Frozen. <laughs> The other uh, thing I can think of, yeah. Uh, but you know, that's that's a whole other category. But uh, but a Star Is Born has definitely uh, become kind of a, a phenomenon with a with a uh, an old Hollywood warhorse of a story. I mean, let's face it, this is a, a story that has been made and remade since the 1930s, and here we are in 2018, and it's been uh, rescrubbed for the fourth or fifth time. Uh, depending on how you look at it, and uh, and it, it works just as well now as as it did then. It's um, you know, I mean, you can kind of look at it. You know, we have we have some maybe some real life uh, versions of this story. Maybe Jay Z and Beyonce, perhaps. You know, like 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 people seem to be able to relate to this story because they they have like a real life analog that they can think about in the back of their minds. But of course, uh, this is. Uh, you know, this is the brainchild of, of Bradley Cooper, uh, 
an actor that I've run hot and cold on over the years. Uh, and here he's actually behind the camera for the first time. So, you know, th- th- there's nothing that, that people like more than to see uh, somebody's hubris uh, punctured, but it, yet it seems that it's uh, it was fully justified in uh, in taking on this project, given the success it's had, the positive reviews, and the, and the, the general fan reaction to it. I mean, I went to it at 11 a.m. on a Saturday, and th- there was a substantial crowd there, which I did not expect, you know, for, for and it, you know, in its second week, I, I figured, oh, it'd be a handful of people there, but I did not expect to see that kind of reaction, um, you know, sort of after the the initial hubbub had had worn down so uh and and it's it's kind of refreshing to see that uh for a movie i'm sure it does have some detractors i mean some people just flat out hate bradley cooper like i say i'm on the fence i've liked him in some stuff hated him in others uh and uh and here he really buries himself into this character in a way that he hasn't done before and obviously uh you know he's he saw this uh property as as the kind of star vehicle that um that he could really kind of uh, stretch his legs with and then uh, put Lady Gaga on her feature film debut role. And, and in some ways, she's probably getting uh, more raves than he is in, in a lot of ways. It's true. Uh, she is really good in the film. Uh, now, I should say for our listeners that we are likely going to get into spoilers here. We're trying to keep it light for the brand new film in case you haven't seen it yet. It has been out for about a month at this time of this recording. But, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about the three versions of this film, The well, the three official versions of this film that uh, preceded it, going back to 1937, and uh, there are many parallels, plot-wise, even dialogue-wise, to in all of these films, so that is going to reveal things about A Star is Born 2018 that if you haven't seen the film, you may not want to know. So anyway, just fair warning, this is going to be a spoiler-heavy conversation. Yeah, let's say up front, like, if you know, unless you've been living under a rock, you should know that this movie does not end well in any of its forms. That's so. right. Yeah, it's a bit of a tragedy. Uh, but it is uh, also very hopeful in other ways as well. Well, yes. Um, now, it's funny, Mr. Cooper. I mean, there, it's almost impossible to sell, to separate uh, the discussion about celebrity and about Hollywood and this film, this property. Mr. Cooper, uh, you know, I have been okay with him for the most part. I think he's a talented leading man type. He's, you know, extremely charismatic and good looking. Those I, I mentioned this on social media, those dreamy blue eyes, uh, you know, and that's some some of that is easy to get uh, frustrated with <laughs> for those of us who are are down here on Earth when you look up at the gods. Uh, but the guy is clearly a talented uh, actor. He has shown that in multiple roles. Now he has some talent as a director. He also isn't bad at singing, as he is shown in this film. And then the other day, I happened to be, uh, you know, strolling through YouTube, and I found an interview with him on a French talk show, and he speaks French. And that, for me, that was the one step too far. I can accept all those other things about him, (laughs) but I cannot accept that he is also multilingual. A polyglot Bradley Cooper is more, it's it's a bridge too far, sir. I will not accept that. Uh, That was frustrating. wait, his next film will be in French. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Yeah, so, so Cooper is he plays Jackson Maine who of course is called the character called Norman Maine in the earlier films he is um, kind of a he's a, he's a rock star he's a, a sort of a mid-level singer songwriter with a, a little bit of Nashville in him he's he's got too much Nashville in him to be sort of a Ryan Adams did you think about who he was trying to be like I, I I thought he's not Ryan Adams but he's not Brad Paisley he's 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 somewhere in the country rock yeah firmament. maybe one of the Sturgill Simpson type of right. type of guy yeah and apparently Cooper went and spent some time 
time with Eddie Vedder to get a sense of the sort of rock star swagger. And I can see that in the way he sort of sweeps his hair back and, and of course, the gravel in his voice. He's, he's speaking in a, in a register much lower than we're used to hearing him speak, and, and that gives him sort of a gravitas. It also makes him sound older, I think, than he is, which I think is important for the character. This guy has been ridden hard and put away wet, as they say. Yes. He's, he's had a rough time of it, and he is probably alcoholic. He certainly has trouble. And um, he's he's after a big show. He stumbles upon Allie. That's the Lady Gaga character, or as they say in the UK, Lady Gaga. Uh, <laughs> I've been enjoying hearing podcasts discussing her lately. And <laughs> Lady, Gaga. Lady Gaga. And I'm just, I'm just catching on to that now. Um, but uh, he, he sees her singing Edith Piaf in a drag bar. Uh, and he's impressed with her presence. And he coaxes from her the songs that she writes, but she won't perform for people. And it isn't long before he's invited her up on stage to play for thousands, and naturally she's a sensation. That whole first act in the new A Star is Born is amazing. That you get the, get the connection between these characters, you get the... Um, Oh, it almost feels like the way it's paced and the way it's edited, you just sort of get carried away by it in a way that I don't see very often in a mainstream film. I think that that Cooper, the director, is really taking some chances in the, his storytelling. He's he's making sure that we're he's really absorbed that that rule in screenwriting that uh, uh, or in editing that you know arrive late, leave early. Like we're always trying to catch up with this film. And I think that's to its credit. It, it gives its audience credit for keeping up with what's going on. There are a bunch of things, although this has been spoiled in the press, like there are relationships between characters that we don't know right off. And then we learn, like for yes. us, between Sam Elliott and the Brad Yeah, we don't know who Sam Elliott is for, for a long for a while. Time. Yeah, he's, and like, it, he's like some guy, his manager or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and there is a definite connection there between them that goes beyond that. And it's it's great when these things are revealed. I'm like, I really enjoyed the storytelling here. And I thought they were very clever about that. Yeah, it does have uh, great momentum. Uh, I mean, it's two hours and what, 20 minutes or something like that. And, uh, but it 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 doesn't get slack very often. Um, you know the the scenes play out, you know as as they should, and then you know the, the, there's always and each one has a sense of purpose to it. That there's a reason why this particular thing is happening, and and the film also does a good job of filling in some of the blanks that um, that we don't necessarily get from the earlier versions of the story. Like we don't know, you know, like Norman Maine and the other versions or. or you know, whichever version of the character, the, the whether it's Chris Christopherson or or um, uh, or uh, Mason, yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say Charles Mason, James Mason, James yeah. Mason, yeah. Um, you know, we 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 know they're they're alcoholics and they have problems, but we don't really know why. It's just the the requirement of the story that they're troubled stars who've been pampered and babied for far too long. Um, but but in this case, we do get more insight into his past, into yeah. his troubled family life growing up. Um, you know, his horrible dad and, and you know, the older brother, who is the, the Sam Elliott character, turns out to be his his much older brother from his dad's previous uh, relationship because his dad was quite old when he had uh, relations with, a, with a, you know, like a young waitress or something like yeah. that. And, and, you know, and then... Jackson Maine comes along, you know, and he's got this brother that everyone thinks is his dad because of the age gap. Um, and, and so we understand that he, you know, that music was kind of his escape um, early on. And then, of course, booze and, and pills became his escape from the rat race of making music. So, uh, you know, in fact, like the opening shot, you know, he's heading out on stage and he downs a handful of pills and washes it down with a 
glass of vodka. So you, from that very opening shot, you know that this guy's in for a rough ride. Mm-hmm. There's, there's really, there's, there's not a real up from, from this. And, uh, you know, I, I always wonder like true love doesn't save all, I guess it's kind of the message, you know, here, but, but, uh, but maybe sacrifice does, you know, that's mm-hmm. kind of the, the message that we're getting from, from all these iterations of the story. But I, I do like some of the additional, uh, ways that they fleshed it out. And, and, um, in, uh, you know, in, in some of the versions of the story that the, the young woman in question, and it's always the man on the, on the way down, you know, finds this, the, the woman talent, the female talent and helps her on the way up. She's not always necessarily incredibly talented in, uh, in some of the earlier versions of the film, but here, of course, uh, you know, uh, you know, Lady Gaga as, as Ali, uh, certainly has the talent. And then, uh, what the where the film takes a different turn is that the way it gets warped and and uh commoditized um over the course of the film and and it's 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 kind of its strength that it actually does have something to say about the current realm of of pop music it does um it does though i would say um it it really channels that sort of current day wish fulfillment that has been uh, stoked by all those pop idol shows, American idol shows and stuff. Yeah. The idea that, that uh, these talent shows, that you can go up on stage and just wow the crowd with your raw talent and that will make give you instant stardom. And that kind of thing is, they're definitely playing with that in this film in a way that I, I really liked. I liked that updating. Um, I really liked the I liked the casting. Obviously Sam Elliott is terrific. He, he's pretty reliable these days he's never he's never not bringing that kind of <laughs> no. like voice and that gravitas but uh, there are other great supporting roles even andrew dice clay as uh, ali's father the the limo driver with the big stories uh, dave chappelle anthony ramos these these are all our great characters around these two that help make this film work but i would also say and this is my only maybe my only real criticism of the film is that um and this is partly maybe part and parcel with that pacing i was talking about earlier the second half is very much weighed towards Jackson. And, uh, you know, the first half is about her transformation into uh, who she really is uh, with his help. And then we see his criticism of her. He is unhappy with some of the decisions she's making in terms of, or some of the decisions that have been made for her in yeah. terms of her image. And there's a scene that takes place in Saturday Night Live and she's singing a song in SNL and it's very, very pop. And at that point, we don't get her perspective. It almost feels to me like there's a scene missing because uh, we don't know that this is what she really wants. I mean, I, I you know, she yeah, wants that's, that's, she, she wants to be able to sing songs and perform, but the song, objectively, the song she sings on SNL is just not that good. No, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it is really terrible. So, but we we see that we see the disappointment in his eyes and his perspective, but we don't get a sense of whether she is feeling like she is being manipulated by the machine or we don't get a sense whether that's bad or good for her like and i i missed that and i wish i wish i'd known for sure how she felt I, I mean the only real sense is that she changes the way she changes her hair color uh at one point she changes into a, quite a a neon color to perform and then later she goes back to her natural color from what she was before and it makes me wonder if uh some of the things that are going on in her professional life though it's brought her stardom and attention and the ability to to share her art whether or not she's had to compromise for it and it's it's a little unclear yeah uh, that that is basically my feeling about that is my one sort of glaring uh thing about the film is that she goes from being 
you know, the Carol King worshiping singer songwriter, you know, like she's actually got the tapestry album cover up on her wall, I think in her bedroom and a couple other Carol King records sort of pop into view around her, around her house. Mm-hmm. Uh, she goes from that to singing, why'd you come around here with an ass like that on Saturday Night Live? Maybe, maybe a little too quickly or a little too willingly. It's, yeah. it, it is, it, it, it seems, it, it does, it seems odd in, in retrospect that, that she, she would, uh, you know, she gets this, this high powered manager, uh, it's a Rez Gavron is the character's name played by Rafi Gavron. I, I found it interesting. <laughs> it's the same surname as his character. Um, and you know, almost the same name as, as in real life, but, but he kind of takes her and he sees her talent and molds her to the pop market. Uh, and, uh, you know, the next thing you know, she's like doing choreographed dance routines and it's not about the songs anymore. Uh, and that, that does happen a little too quickly. I feel like there needs to be some scene where she has to wrestle with these decisions, but she just kind of goes along with it. And, uh, and Jackson doesn't seem to have a ton of input into it. And it's like, you know, you'd think that maybe he would have a little, like, I think the Streisand, uh, Christopherson film does a better job of easing, uh, her character into becoming a pop star you know, from with his guidance or, you know, from his background yeah. and he's, a little and, bit better, a little bit more smoothly. Yeah. And she's, and Streisand is so confident in her character. This is, I'm sure we'll talk about this yeah. when we get to the 76 version, but she's, she feels like a star already. Like there's, she, she's just very, her presence and her, the way she controls her character is, you know, she's clear, she's meant for stardom. There's no doubt. There's no self-doubt with her. She's yeah. with Streisand. She's, she's on her way. Um, but uh, yeah, here I felt, and I mean, then there's the question of whether the film is being critical of pop music in, in the global, you know, uh, universally. And I, and I, I don't think it intends to be, but I think that's, you could take away if you, if you, if, if uh, Jackson Maine, is, his perspective is really the one you want to follow, then you could take that away from the film. And I don't know that that's that's necessarily what it's actually saying, but I think there is there is something there's there's a political or a um, a creative subtext there that is a little unclear. That said, uh, I think the film is terrific. I mean, it's really one of my favorite films of the fall so far, and not even that I think it's a it's a great like you know I don't even know if it'll trouble my best of list at the end of the year. But yet, I mean, I hate to hate to make those calls now in in October. But uh, I will say that the character stayed with me. So even days yeah. later, I was thinking about the relationship between the characters. It's been a long time since I've gone to see something in the cinema where where I felt I felt the emotion of the characters so thoroughly, and I think that's what people are reacting to. Yeah, and I I think that the trajectory of Ali's character is to some degree based on Lady Gaga's own career path because mm. she had a stretch before Poker Face, you know, and before she just kind of burst on the scene fully formed, she actually was like part of the L.A. songwriting scene. Like she was, um, you know, another uh, songsmith uh, trying to write hits for other people and that kind of thing and, and, you know, writing her own songs. But very much in a more of a singer-songwriter mode uh, before, you know, she became Lady Gaga. And... Uh, in fact, I didn't even really know about that whole phase of her career until I, I actually did a phone interview with Michael Bolton. And I, I, I think I asked him uh, like about songwriters that he was like current songwriters that he was really into or that, you know, maybe he thought that he was kind of ahead of the curve on. And apparently he had done some songwriting sessions with her before she ever became famous that when she was just plugging away in the, in that uh, LA songwriting uh, circle and, and that, you know, that he saw that talent at an early stage um, before, uh, before she kind of burst onto the scene. And then I, I thought I found that kind of interesting that, that she had that kind of 
you know, that she really had uh, the skills down before, you know, that she, you know, she, she didn't just emerge fully formed, that she'd been working at becoming a songwriter for, for quite a while before uh, hitting it big as an artist. And so I think, I, I'm thinking that maybe that, that Allie's story was kind of tailored towards the same similar thing. Although, of course, I think Lady Gaga had a lot more control over her music and her image and all that kind of stuff and was able to pull stuff out of, you know, out of left field, like wearing a meat dress or <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, where, which, whereas Allie kind of gives it all over to uh, Gavron, her, her manager, to the point where like he's kind of dictating things to Jackson towards the end of the film, which of course sets up the the final act. Um, but uh, you know the, the uh, you know and that that sort of connection to real life makes it quite interesting. I mean, most people probably don't know about Lady Gaga's whole early period of, of writing tunes for other people, but um, but I feel like that's what they were kind of tapping into. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, I, though she, I know she said during the whole press junket tour of this, it's funny to watch, I went and watched some of it, and, you know, they keep repeating the same stories over and over about how how uh, Gaga and uh, and Cooper met and, uh, and, you know, how it all worked out and how she was impressed with his voice and he was impressed with her acting and, you know, how it all just seemed like it was in the stars. Uh, um, <laughs> so, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's, that's been fun to see and uh and it's it is yeah it's a terrific it's a terrific film and it's also uh really really fun to go back and watch all the others so i think i think uh, yeah i mean i'm i don't know if you have anything else to talk about on this front but i think we should go and we should delve into the past yeah let's let's look at the other iterations of a star is born so we've, we've got a couple more segments so stay tuned we'll be right back Well, to go back to the start of the whole A Star is Born saga, uh, I guess we should look at a film, and just briefly, because I haven't seen this in years. I believe it is available through uh, Warner Archive, uh, through their kind of mail-order-only uh, DVD service, uh, and it's uh, it's What Price Hollywood is, is kind of where it all starts. Um, you know, features a story by Adela Rogers St. John's, who was kind of a Hollywood insider who, who wrote a lot of screenplays and then wrote a lot about the inner workings of Hollywood uh, in her later years, and directed by George Cukor, which is interesting, and, pr- and produced by David Oselznik, who who also produced the first film titled "The Star Is Born," uh, which which came along a few years later. But didn't Cukor uh, direct the and second Cukor, one? And Cukor directed the Judy Garland version of "A Star Is Born" right. from 1954. So you know the the same producer uh, as the the first star is born and then the same director is the second. So uh, there's definitely a connection here. Uh, Basically Constance Bennett plays a waitress at the Brown Derby who befriends a drunken uh, movie director who um, takes her out to a a movie premiere and, uh, you know, tries to get her started in the business. Uh, Lowell Sherman plays the director. Uh, She doesn't have a ton of acting talent, which is something we all, uh, you know, from a star, from the Judy Garland one on, um, the character of of Esther Blodgett or whatever you want to call her, or Allie, um, in the, in the latest version, uh, are clearly very talented and just need that extra push from someone in a position like Norman Maine or Jackson Maine or whoever. But in this case, uh, she's actually not that talented and and you know has to kind of fight to 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 get another chance. Um, this is also kind of the case with. Um, uh, Janet Gaynor in uh, in A Star Is Born in, in the, the late '30s version, um, and it doesn't have they the, she doesn't marry the director. Uh, she actually marries a polo player played by Neil Hammond 
Neil Hamilton, who was very young here, who most people might remember as Commissioner Gordon in the '60s Batman TV series. So it's kind of he was a, he was an early '30s kind of handsome matinee idol who was in a lot of uh, early pre-code movies, and then he kind of vanishes from the screen. He must have gone back to the stage or something, and then he pops up again in Batman, you know, 30 years later. Um, but uh, but there is an embarrassing uh, Academy Award sequence, which uh, the embarrassing award show sequence is a staple of of all the versions. Uh, and uh, she has to she has to go to the drunk tank to bail out the director, uh, and uh, you know he 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 eventually she marries the polo player. He's dissolute about it because I guess he was really in love with her, um, but knows that he's bad for her, which is another thing that, that runs through all these stories. Uh, he uh, shoots himself. He commits suicide, and uh, she quits the movie biz and goes off to Paris. Um, so that's so it's it's similar. It's not a carbon copy of the versions that would come along later. But um, definitely lays the groundwork for uh, the versions of A Star is Born that would come along later. And, and not, I mean, that was 1932, I think. So it's only five years later that uh, David O. Selznick uh, decides to give the property another shot. Maybe, you know, correct some of the mistakes of the first one by making the romance between the, the, the failed, uh, well, like I say, it was a director in the first one. So... You know, not a big star with a big reputation, but a guy who had a lot of power in Hollywood who was just seeing it kind of slip through his fingers. Um, so what they changed it uh, for A Star is Born, they, they sort of tightened up the romance to be between uh, a wannabe hopeful uh, actor played by Janet Gaynor and a huge star uh, who's about to uh, hit the skids played by Frederick March. Uh, directed by William A. Wellman, the film has been uh, recently restored. It's Technicolor film, so it's a gorgeous-looking film. And the most recent uh, version of it uh, on Blu-ray from Kino, I believe, uh, looks pretty great. It has that great kind of warm Technicolor hue of of uh, of, uh, of the of the, the look of those color films of the late 1930s. Before uh, you know, when Technicolor feature film photography was still kind of in its infancy in, in a lot of ways. I mean, Technicolor had been around since the silent days, but but it was a big deal. Like, if you were investing in Technicolor, that meant the film was a big kind of splashy gala film. And in this case, uh, Janet Gaynor uh, was a huge star who'd been around since the the silent movie days. So she was a well-known quantity. And Frederick March ha- had certainly uh, made his name on the stage and was had become a, a well-known actor in Hollywood. So they're, they're fairly well-matched. It's kind of interesting uh, that Janet Gaynor is actually, her career is kind of in its waning days at this point, even though she's playing the bright young hopeful in in this version of A Star is Born. And Frederick March, uh, even though he's playing uh, Norman Maine, the actor who's um, kind of on the way down, uh, in fact, his career is just going on to greater and greater triumphs uh, through the 40s and into the 50s, where you know he's doing things like uh, Inherit the Wind, the famous, uh, the, the film adaptation of the play, um, about the Scopes Monkey Trial. So uh, it's kind of interesting that their paths are actually kind of the opposite of what's happening in their, in their <laughs> real lives. That is interesting, yeah. Um, and, and, and maybe there's a parallel there with the Judy Garland version as well. But, uh, but I, 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 I do like this film a lot. There, there's, uh, you know, I hadn't seen it in a while, and I did rewatch it recently. And, I, and uh, as you brought up, uh, one of the, the screenwriters, there, there are quite a few screenwriters who worked on it, but Dorothy Parker is probably the most notable um, as well as the director himself, William A. Wellman. But, um, you know, some of the more savage barbs lodged 
against the the movie biz, I think probably came from Dorothy Parker, as you suggested before we uh, turn the mics on. Yeah, it is a uh, it is a very clear eyed film about the the pitfalls of Hollywood and what a machine it is. But it's at the same time, it's amazing they have their they have their cake and eat it too. At the same time, they celebrate all that machinery. Like they're very upfront about the fact that all these actors, when they arrive in Hollywood, and if they if if the people in charge decide they have the talent, then they are put through the uh, sausage making factory, and their their name is changed, and they are glitzed and glammed, and all of that is part of the process and yet and it's even though it's shown as being dehumanizing it's also shown as like this is the price you have to pay in order for you to get you know to the very top and uh, it's it's fascinating how it goes both ways i really like the film i really liked how it opens you know it's got these opening scenes of hollywood then the credits and then you see script pages uh, yes. <laughs> of the film that you're about to watch. And then we go to North Dakota in the snow where we meet the young Esther Blodgett who has dreams of going to Hollywood. And uh, it just feels very meta in some ways. Uh, and uh, and I love the dialogue. Here's where I really heard Dorothy Parker right from the get-go. Uh, Esther has a uh, an Aunt Maddie who's very critical. You and your movies, it's all you think about. You shouldn't be allowed to go to them at all if you're asking me. And then Granny <laughs> comes in from the kitchen. Too bad I was so busy in the kitchen I didn't hear anybody asking you. And then Aunt Maddie goes, of course, no one ever listens to me. And Granny is like, they do if they're within 10 miles of you. It's like it's constant, yeah. that kind of biting humor. I, I really love that. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I just – and then she, of course, goes to Hollywood. And uh, then she gets a job sor- serving hors d'oeuvres at, like, a cocktail party. That's where she meets Norman Maine. And she's and she's doing all these uh, impersonations. Yeah, that's fine. Doing your gratitude. Garbo and her Marlena Dietrich and her Mae West and yeah, <laughs> trying to yeah. impress the Hollywood executives at this party. It's it's a great it's a great end to the the story and her meeting uh, Norman Maine and who's of course drunk and, mm-hmm. and uh, she gets caught up in his hijinks and in smashing plates in the kitchen and you know he yeah. ditches his his girl I guess his girlfriend uh, you know they're always seen at uh, premieres and stuff but she's very kind of dry and glamorous yet uninteresting mm-hmm. and, and maybe european i think yeah possibly uh, <laughs> in, in a way that that many stars were in in those days uh to give them some exoticism and then and then of course uh you know he, he he meets esther blodgett and uh you know decides to try and get her a screen test and the, the studios are like oh here we go again so clearly this is a pattern that he uh he's repeated in the past but uh and 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 she's kind of you know she's got this wholesome you know, Plains charm about her that um, at, at some point one of the executives says that that's out, you know, that's that's corny and uh-huh. old-fashioned. But as it turns out that there's a large audience that actually kind of wants that after being foisted, uh, having all these exotic, uh, you know, women of adventure kind of foisted upon them. They want to see somebody who's kind of plain and relatable. And as it turns out, she her career just kind of takes off from there. Yeah. Even though it's obvious she's probably not a great actress, but but, you know, if she can kind of just find roles that, you know, she's playing like pilgrims and things. Mm-hmm. We see her in, in, we don't see a ton of her at work, uh, but we do see her in like some historical dramas and that kind of thing. And and uh, and that seems to appeal to uh, the folks in the flyover states, I guess. And and so she has this kind of rise to fame. And and uh, and Norman Maine just just can't seem to help himself. You know, he just embarrasses himself. 
continually when he's uh, when he's not working, and eventually yeah. that puts him out of work. It's funny at the beginning they they actually are quite clever about setting him up as kind of like party man, like he's breaking those plates. And there's a story about how at one point he stole an ambulance. Like <laughs> yes. you know he does have these this sort of crazy image, and some of that you get the impression the maybe the studio has been has been uh, promoting that you know as part of his 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 image but uh it's out of control and uh, i really like uh the studio head played by adolf menju who i remember from seeing him in paths of glory of course, which he made yes. you know 20 years later um but this is the guy who cares for for norman maine he tries to warn maine about his drinking but maine gives him a token that says uh, a little token that says good for amusement only and then he says <laughs> yes. this is my epitaph <laughs> i mean there's some pretty dark yeah. sharp dialogue here and i really i really like that um you know when Janet Gaynor's character, when uh, Esther is going to try and get a, get uh, representation, and uh, the woman tells her, uh, you know, takes her into basically a room where there is all these people answering phones, all these girls answering phones, and sorry, you're busy, and then she says, you know, that this is because these are people looking for jobs, and there are no jobs, and there is one chance in a hundred thousand, and she responds, maybe I'm the one, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, that that is that is that's part of it, that's part of it, uh, and then Lionel Stander is in this, who is someone I remember from years later when he was in, I think, Heart, Heart to, to Heart, Heart, yeah, as a, a TV show I watched when I was a kid, and he was clearly a lot older. That was thirty or forty years later. Um, here he is, the studio publicist, pretty much the meanest guy in the film, and he is very mean towards uh i mean about, about vicky lester he says her very walk they tell me is enough to drive men mad like he's writing all this oh yeah he's, stuff. he's the king of bump yeah you know, just making stuff up and... she she's trained to speak and plucked and groomed uh and then later he runs into um norman in a bar when he he's really having a rough time and they get into a fight and it's just like oh yeah it's uh i i uh i think the blueprint here is Terrific, but it does, as with all of these versions of A Star is Born, they each say something about the culture of Hollywood that existed at the time. And I think that's what's so fascinating. It's like that they they really do have some interesting things to say, whether celebrating or criticizing what life was like for people who wanted to get into the spotlight. Yeah, the uh, the, the publicist who has to cover up for Norman Maine. I mean, that, that was a very typical thing in Hollywood at the time, you know, for... Uh, you know, if, if you listen to the podcast, you must remember this. There's a, a lot of uh, sort of Hollywood uh, insider stories about stars who are out of control or had lifestyles that didn't uh, necessarily pass muster with the uh, the uh, the folks at the, the 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 Breen office who controlled sort of morality in Hollywood. And and everything changed after 1934 when the production code came in. And and um, you know, some stars were just flat out let go William Haynes who was openly gay you know and but was one of MGM's biggest male stars was just summarily dropped um you know or you know did he did he quit or was he fired you know there's different stories on that but but uh you know and it was the publicists who had to kind of cover up you know like send them out on dates with people even if they weren't necessarily you know the same orientation or what have you and and uh there was a lot of that kind of thing. It seems like there was almost no star who didn't have some skeleton in their closet that studio publicists and fixers, like in Hail Caesar, you know, the, the character that Josh Brolin plays in Hail Caesar, who has to kind of, you know, cover, knows where all the bodies are buried and so on. Um, right. So so there's an element of that that's kind of surprising for the time because a lot of people who, you know, maybe they read the movie magazines or what have you, but didn't really have an inkling of, of what really went on, you know, in, in Tinseltown, uh, which, you know, operated by a whole other set of rules. And so I love the Lionel Stander character because he seems to sum up uh, 
you know that that guy who was at every studio who had to you know cover up for for the uh you know licentious or uh uh you know gregarious uh, lifestyles of these of these stars and uh you know and then once uh once the air is let out of uh Norman Maine's balloon, and he really lets him have it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, and Lionel, Lionel Stander is a character actor. I, I've seen him in so many movies, uh, you know. And sadly, he was he was blacklisted uh, during the the Red Scare of the late '40s and into the '50s. Uh, but you know, amazing actor, unforgettable voice. You know, I, I've seen him in comedies and dramas. He's in, he's great in um, Fritz Lang made a a film called uh, Hangman Also Die about Nazi persecution in Europe. Kind of a really dark thriller kind of ahead of its time. And he's terrific in that. But shortly after that period, he'd be kind of banned from the screen for, for a number of years. Um, and, uh, and it, it's, it, yeah, that, that whole whitewashing of, of the lives of stars is, is something that you didn't necessarily see portrayed in films. Uh, you might see it. There might be novels uh, about Hollywood, maybe, maybe more F. Scott Fitzgerald kind of thing, but it's not something you saw in popular entertainment, acknowledging the fact that, how phony everything that they're glorifying really is, mm-hmm. and uh, and and we see that continue into into the next version of Star Is Born. Yeah, and uh, Judy Garland. This I think the 1954 edition is maybe the most heartbreaking, and yeah. that has to do with Judy being cast in the Vicky Lester, the Esther turns to her her of course her star role, her her name in Up in Lights is Vicky Lester, uh, and it's it's because of the parallels between uh, Judy Garland's actual life and some of the things she's has to deal with in this film that again there is this kind of overlay quality of like uh, and and maybe seen from now when we look back at it even more so maybe in 54 you know uh Judy Garland's story had yet to really be told there was still she still had years ahead of her when she was still in the spotlight but but there is a fragility to her a tremulousness that you hear in her voice and you can you can see that she's kind of had a rough time of it, even beyond the character she's playing. Yes. Uh, there is a scene here I think we should talk about uh, where she basically, she talks to, to to Charles. She's playing Vicky Lester. She's the same arc. She's met uh, Norman Maine, played by James Mason. He's given her her opportunity. She's shining. I mean, this is, and this is a full-on musical this time, so there's lots of singing. There's lots of big production numbers. This is a pretty dark story, though, and at a certain point, she's in her dressing room. She's all made up in black eyeliner, and she's kind of got a silly hat on, and, <laughs> and it's like she's playing this sort of, like, jaunty character, but in back in in the in the dressing room when she talks to Charles Bickford who plays the sort of uh uh guy from the studio and she is uh you know she asks him what makes someone want to destroy themselves she's trying to deal with with uh, Norman's alcoholism and she admits that sometimes she hates him and then she hates herself for failing him and there's an incredible rawness in this in a way that is so shocking i mean it's even beyond the level of the film, which is already pretty dramatic, um, and that's the that's the clip. If you want to go, if you, I mean, you want to go see the movie, it's all it's completely available. But that clip is available on YouTube, and I recommend anyone check it out because her acting is off off the charts. Yeah, the 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 fifty four version far surpasses, uh, you know, the uh, the thirty eight, thirty seven, thirty seven version yeah. in 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 most ways. I mean, uh, there's as we said, there's some great dialogue, some sharp barbs. There's maybe more comedy. Um, in in the uh, the first Star Is Born, uh, but I don't know that Frederick March really gets playing a drunk down terribly well. Um, well, he's not he's not ugly or sloppy. He's, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, at some point, he does actually he goes into a sanitarium, 
at some point in the film. So they are acknowledging that it, you know, that he's an alcoholic, but it's not something that people really knew how to deal with to that degree. Like it was just like, oh, you're drunk, you know, and that was kind of, but it wasn't seen as a disease. It wasn't, you know, the, the, the treatment for it was just to dry out in a sanitarium and hope that you don't hit the bottle when you come out kind of thing. Um, you know, there wasn't necessarily therapy for it and it wasn't, the, the manner of behavior was often treated as comedic um, for the most part. So, so if, you know, we're, we're 15 years later and, uh, you know, James Mason's portrayal is far more realistic, uh, you know, pay, like right from the get-go, like in the opening scenes where they're at the, the huge benefit at, uh, I can't remember what theater it's supposed to be, but the Pantages or Grauman's or whatever. And, then, and um, you know, and he, he shows up for this benefit just hammered and just, he's like a bull in a china shop. It's amazing. And I love that opening scene. And that really, you know, that sets the tone. I mean, this, the film is three hours long. It's or like just over three hours. And, uh, you know, so it's, you know, there's a lot more room to play with that character. And, and, and Mason is phenomenal throughout and, and, and Judy Garland, you know, like they're, they're definitely like oil and water, uh, the two characters and, you know, she's trying to save him and he's just, uh, you know, on this path of, uh, self-destruction and it's, it, the film just feels groundbreaking, like watching it, like you watch it and you're trying to think, uh, in terms of 1954 when it came out and, um, what, a what a shock it must've been for people to see it, to see, you know, alcoholism treated in a relatively realistic way, uh, for the time. Uh, and also to, you know, to see something with these upbeat musical numbers, but not an upbeat story. That was kind of a new thing too. Um, there aren't too many films from that period that do that. There's another one called It's Always Fair Weather that um, isn't quite as uh, searing as, as A Star is Born, but it's one of the few kind of musicals that has a downbeat feel to some of it. But this this one uh, is, is just, it feels ahead of its time in so many ways. Like even the, the look of the film, like the, the colors feel more realistic in some ways. Um, you know, there's there scenes that look like they could have been photographed yesterday. It, it doesn't necessarily have that technicolor gloss to the whole thing. And, uh, and, and, you know, people weren't used to seeing Judy Garland this way either. Uh, she'd been kind of off the screen for a few years after her contract with MGM ended. Um, I think some of her private battles with, uh, with, uh, pills and, and other substances and, and, and her weight and other things, some of that may have been known, but I don't know that it was as out there as it would become in, in later years. Uh, and certainly after she passed away, um, you know, just over a decade later. So. Uh, the, the film, it, it feels like an interesting fulcrum between two different eras. And, uh, and you're right, the, the, the whole way that it reflects on Judy Garland's own real life struggles is pretty remarkable for mm-hmm. a film of that time. Yeah. And you mentioned that it's over three hours. There's actually a couple of different versions, I think, of this film. There's, there's like a 154 minute version. And then there is one, the one I was able to track down, which is three hours. And it, but it includes, I guess it's a restored edition where they, were not able to actually find scenes that had been cut out of the original, but they were able to find the the voice tracks, like the sound. Yeah. So there are these sort of sepia-toned um, stills that are inserted into the film to help bridge those scenes, and then you can hear what they're saying, but you don't actually see them. It's a strange technique, and I'm not sure if it actually it actually works in terms of making the film feel more robust, but it's certainly longer as a result. Yeah, not not all of those scenes are essential, but uh, you know, I guess when they when they did the first major restoration of this, and in fact, I, I have a book by Robert Harris, the man who did all that work on it, um, actually wrote a book about the whole restoration of the film, uh, and. You know, they were trying to give it back some of the grandeur that it had, I guess, when it 
when, at its premiere, and then because after that it got cut fairly drastically. Um, uh, one of the interesting things I love about this restoration, and like I have the Blu-ray of the film, and I think that's the only version that's available on it. Like it doesn't give you multiple versions of it. Um, you know, you just get the the restored version, which has those. Uh, interstitial bits with the still photographs and uh, audio tracks but there then there are like shots of of cars pulling away or pulling like so apparently they, they cut the scenes out but then they they salvaged bits of it for use as stock footage like right. a, for inserts so shots yeah. of cars pulling away from the sanitarium or uh, of hands stirring a cup it's of almost coffee like or, the, like the b-roll or something it, it's very okay. odd but but they yeah. actually are shots that were taken f- from a Star is Born uh, from the cut scenes, but then they were put away in a stock footage in Warner's stock footage library. So, oh, we need a shot of this car pulling up to that diner or whatever. And and so they, there's weird little bits and pieces that just kind of jump out of, of transitional shots and things like that that were saved to be used as stock footage. Maybe they even did turn up in other films. I don't know, but but it, it is a, an unusual restoration. I don't know that... Um, a lot of other films would kind of follow suit in trying to restore. I mean, there was the famous version of Greed where they took, tried to recreate the epic version of the silent film by using stills and, you know, moving the camera over the stills, Ken Burns style and all that kind of thing, along with whatever footage remained. And uh, it's it's an interesting technique. I, I don't know that it's very cinematic, but I guess it gives you a flavor of what this great film once was, supposedly. But... Uh, uh, it didn't. It doesn't happen. There's only certain points in the film where that kind of happens, and I think the last chunk of the film is pretty much left in as it was. So, you know, I find them kind of interesting little speed bumps along the way. I guess. <laughs> Now, the 1976 version of A Star is Born, and again, heads up, we are being pretty spoilerific here in our conversation of the predecessors to the Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga version. Uh, This one is better than I'd been led to believe, uh, having seen it and heard sort of that it was a bit of a disaster and a bit of also a very troubled production. There is uh, quite a bit of of, uh, material out there written about how, how many issues were going on in the background, how Elvis was originally approached to be in the, uh, the, the, the John Norman Howard is his name this time, the, the male role in this film. How different would that have been if Elvis had been in the film? Um, but uh, it, uh, it, the film is actually pretty great. I think it convincingly captures the rock and roll excess of the era with this wide angle cinematography. It makes a John Norman Howard into kind of a rock star, which of course by the 1970s, that's what that was the predominant musical um, you know mode for celebrity, and uh, it brings in a, a lots of extras and and a few good tunes. I actually like some of the songs, uh, and in casting Chris Christopherson, not only do we get a songwriting legend who had been around that at that point long enough to have a little bit of like gristle, um, he's also uh, a scene vet- a veteran of of being. You know, he's seen, I mean, he's been part of the whole culture for a while, having written great songs and having been a great performer and a capable actor. Like, he had been known to be in a number of films at that point in his career. So I thought that casting is great, and he's really good in it. Um, and then um, Barbara Streisand, of course, uh, you know, it's it really is a little bit of a vanity project for her. Her, um, 
I gather her or boyfriend at the time, which I believe is John Peters. Peters yeah. He's a, he's a producer on the film. He's still credited as a producer on the uh, the current film, the the new one in cinemas now. Um, but there's something about Streisand. You know, it's amazing. She is. There's a lot of stuff that gets into the script. I think as a result of her. Um, you know, her presence and her being very liberated and very political. Uh, she says at one point when, at one point when the two characters get married, she says, I never thought I'd get married again, which is, I thought, I think a fair, fairly progressive thought for 1976. <laughs> um, she's being a divorcee. Um, she's really lived. And I, I also liked that, um, you know, she and, and jo- her character in this is called Esther Hoffman. But uh, she and John Norman Howard are kind of peers. They, they, she is, she's lived. She's been a performer for a while. There's more of a sense of equity between the two characters, which I really like. And I think Cooper borrows some of that for his version. Um, but, but yeah, uh, it is. I think this is much more Barbara Streisand vanity project in some ways, and that's hard to get past. Uh, I don't. Her character there isn't really that much of an arc for her. Yeah, she's. I mean, you know, we have this. Uh, it, for, for one thing, this film is definitely the template that they used for the new version yes. of Stars Born. Oh, yeah. There aren't, I mean, obviously, this has echoes of the previous versions, but we have people like uh, Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn working on the screenplay. I guess uh, that's the 70s version of, uh, of Dorothy Parker, I guess. Yeah, sure. And, and uh, but, but very seasoned writers uh, working on this screenplay. Uh, but, uh, you know, there were many hands in that screenplay, I guess. And a director who was not. Really, a great director, Frank Pearson, who I think mostly did a lot of TV stuff mm. uh, for the most part, um, and he did not get on well with either of his stars. Okay, um, and you know, in later years, said that working with Streisand was virtually <laughs> impossible. Um, you know, because she was kind of driving this this project, and um, and so you know, it's hard to say what kind of artistic decisions behind the scenes you know, may or may not have come out of this kind of almost a feuding relationship. But, um, but I, I think the film overall works pretty well. Uh, but you're right. Like when we meet her, she's, you know, she's working in a bar, singing with a vocal trio, um, you know, maybe not established, but she is, you know, she's, she's working as a singer as opposed to say Lady Gaga or, uh, in what price, what price Hollywood or the first star is born. Um, and, uh, so, you know, she may have been discovered anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she or she may have been able to get a leg up some other way. Uh, but uh, but she and Christopherson seem to have a pretty decent chemistry. Uh, I don't know that he's said anything derogatory about working with her. I'm not I'm not sure about that. Uh, I mean, I think it's the one and only time they they work together. But uh, you know, and the film was a huge hit as, as a result. Um, it doesn't. Uh, I guess, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of how, like Christofferson's alcoholism, you know, it's clearly a problem. We have another award show debacle mm-hmm. as we have in, in pretty much every version of this story, including what price Hollywood. Uh, I, th- I think the way that a star is born, the new version handles it is pretty innovative. Uh, I, I, maybe that I won't spoil, but um, you know, in this case, it's basically just turns into a brawl essentially at, at I think at the Grammys. Um, and, uh, but but he doesn't really seem to want to get better. Like at least like Jackson Maine is played by Bradley Cooper. You know wants to improve. 
you know, wants to make things better. Uh, Chris Christopherson doesn't, he just, he's kind of in his own head and, and she's in her, her own head. So it's kind of like the clash of the egos in a way that isn't necessarily the case in the other versions. Right. Um, which I guess, you know, and that's a very 70s thing, I guess, that to get wrapped up in your own ego trip. Uh, and, but I, but I find it does seem to rise above it. It doesn't get too trapped in its 70s trappings, if you will. Um, and uh, that's that's kind of what I liked about it. The concert scenes are very excitingly shot. Yeah, yeah, uh, I really like it when uh, when uh, our hero hero John Norman Howard at one point he's he's on stage he's smashed you know it's all going to hell and he's he's getting some some uh, you know bad vibes to use yes. this seventies parlance uh, from the crowd. So he goes out off stage. He grabs a motorcycle and he rides it back onto the stage. He spins around on stage. And this whole thing just feels like it's actually happening. Like the cinematography, all of that scene, the staging is amazing. And then he gets, he flies off the stage, off the bike into the crowd. It's uh, it's an unbelievable scene. uh, In terms of like rock star excess, I really feel like it delivers. Yeah. And I I think that uh, Streisand, you know, has a character that, that, that really, uh, really benefits the portrayal of Esther. She makes it her own in a way that, you know, Judy Garland made her version of Esther Blodgett her own in, in, in 54 and, and Lady Gaga does with Ali in, uh, in the new version. Um, and, but yeah, you're right. It is kind of becomes a Streisand star vehicle more so than serving the story some of the time. But, uh, but, but I did like it a lot more than I thought I would. I, I, I watched it recently. I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. I do think I watched it like back in the nineties or something like that. And uh, I was I was surprised at how well it worked for me. Now I was thought it was going to be maybe two seventies or maybe just the right kind of two seven, like just kind of bask in in in, in that era. But nostalgia, I, yeah, yeah. But but I find it, it it's it's it does there is an earthiness to it that uh, maybe I didn't expect, and I think maybe that's why it, it still works today. Yeah, no, I, I agree, and it's it's really cool to see someone like Gary Busey in it as the sort of he plays the manager to uh, John Norman Howard. And, uh, you know, Gary Busey is an actor who in years since has, has he's still fairly visible. He shows up on one thing or another, but he's kind of, he's, he's kind of stoked that image uh, from, I don't know, everything from entourage to, you know, just as the kind of the crazy man, the, the guy who's been, been, uh, had a rough time of it. But back when he was a young man and, and he's got presence on screen, it's, it's really good to see him in this. Yeah. It's funny. He's kind of the enabler. Like he's, you know, you see him giving uh, John Howard his, his uh, obligatory snorts of cocaine before he goes on stage to kind of wake him up, and uh, and, and and until the point where, of course, it just goes a little too far, and then he can't rein him back. And Paul Mazursky shows up as his, I guess, the the record label honcho, who's right. I guess the voice of reason, kind of like Charles Bickford, uh, you know, in in the in the James Mason Judy Garland version. Um, so it's it's almost like the Sam Elliott character is like a combination of Paul Mazursky and uh, and, and uh, Gary Busey to a certain degree. Sure, as the guy who has to keep him on the straight and narrow. But uh, you know, it, it's when everybody kind of washes their hands of of him, it's it's pretty it's pretty heartbreaking. Um, and it's interesting that it's it leaves it it leaves uh, the, his fate um, as opposed to the other films, where it's very clear that he's either walking into the surf or or you know ending his life in some fashion with uh, with Christopherson's character, it's it's left a little ambiguous, which I found interesting. I, I always wondered like why they decided to make that change to the character, but maybe you know maybe that because so many rock legends are are kind of ambiguous in that way, you know, like 
about whether you know what really happened and, and yeah i mean i think you can read it as ambiguity but i also think that you know when he's playing the 10 of the 8 track in his car <laughs> as he's driving his convertible i think it's a i think it's a ferrari or something at in, yeah. at like you know a dangerous speeds through the desert i don't know how ambiguous that actually is i i think he's he's self-destructive and it's just like the the natural conclusion yeah. of an incredible incredibly self-destructive streak uh that uh that takes him out um and uh, yeah but i uh yeah again it, it i think it, it lends itself to that whole 70s story we had by then we had already heard the stories of james dean and uh, of uh you know and, and many other people especially in the music industry who had uh had you know wrung themselves out with bad decision making and uh, and and an addictive personality so so yeah i i uh i actually i think i would tell people that uh, if you're going to go back and watch them don't miss the 76 version i think it's uh i think it's great i think it's better than than people make it and i i also think it's nice to see barbara streisand in her at her time when i mean her voice is is pretty unbelievable in these in these scenes and uh she she you know we were being critical of uh of this i mean i said it myself that it felt like a vanity project but uh but at the same time in terms of women in hollywood she was making her own decisions and doing it and uh and that the evidence of that is right there up on the screen And that has been Lends Me Your Ears, another episode talking about films in cinemas and from the past, and our look back at A Star is Born, the many iterations. Uh, Really appreciate you listening to our show today. Uh, If you would like to reach out to us, we can be found on many places. We have a Facebook page for Lends Me Your Ears. We've got a, a Twitter account, and Stephen and I also have our own Twitter accounts. Mine is named after my blog. It's at Flaw in the Iris. And you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. We've also got a Patreon if you'd like to uh, help support us in our efforts to chat about film and uh, and bring it to ears here, hither and yon. We appreciate any help you can provide. Also, feel free to download and listen via your favorite podcast downloading source uh, on Apple Podcasts. You can star, give us a, a good review, and we would very much appreciate that as well. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the uh, support for us as well, allowing us the production facilities to record this at CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax, where we are aired every second Tuesday at 5.30. And also many thanks to the Village Soundcast Network for dotting the I's and crossing the T's and making it all happen for us. Thank you again for listening to Lends Me Your Ears, and we'll talk to you again about movies very soon. See you next time. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.